0: Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations.
1: Down, to
0: As you all know, Master Brewers is a nonprofit organization. You probably also realize that it's expensive to produce shows like the Master Brewers podcast every week. If you're a vendor, please consider sponsoring the Master Brewers podcast. It'll cost you less than you probably spent to sponsor that last district meeting, and your message will reach the thousands of brewers who tune in each week. Click contact from masterbrewerspodcast.com to learn more.
1: Uh, you'll, You'll feel frustrated as a brewer that I've paid money, I've spent time in the process to dose this, and I'm still not getting the results that I'm supposed to get. This week on
0: the show, we're talking about one of the most timeless and popular finding agents in the industry, Isinglass. You'll learn how it works, how to optimize your results, when and why to use auxiliary fining such as silica solutions, and more. Here's today's guest to guide us along the way.
1: Uh, hi, my name is Andrew Fratiani, and I am the Senior Brewing Application Specialist for DuPont Industrial Biosciences, where I look after... Uh, enzyme applications in brewing and distilling.
0: Isinglass sometimes gets a bad rap. I'm conjuring up a scenario you've probably encountered more often than I have that is, a novice brewer grimacing and asking why anyone would want to put fish guts in beer. Let's start with a reality check. Tell us what Isinglass really is and where it comes from.
1: Well, uh, Isinglass is a collagen, and it is uh, being a collagen is a very specific type of protein um, and the icing glass that has traditionally worked in the brewing industry and, and worked the best it comes from fish uh, so this is uh, something that's uh, harvested, it's a natural product and then processed basically it's soaked in a dilute acid in order to extract the collagen uh, which then helps to clarify the beer so I, I think people, when they think about it, or brewers, when when they have that kind of reaction, probably don't have the entire uh, story or all the information about ice and glass, where it comes from, and how it's produced, and how it's used.
0: That makes sense. It's been been in use for quite some time, right?
1: Yes. Yeah, so for brewing, it's uh, we have references that uh, we can cite going back to at least the 1700s. It's also been used in cooking and there are some references uh, that go back even 200 years uh, prior to to that. So we're looking at the 1500s. It could be, again, being a uh, a natural product and the icing glass uh, that we use comes from the uh, swim bladder of fish, which is a sack or a container. I think it's easy to imagine that Thousands of years ago, uh, it was first discovered that this was very good at a a crude vessel uh, for holding food or liquids.
0: Tell us about the structure of isinglass and exactly how it clarifies beer.
1: Okay. Uh, So, right. In general, uh, we I think most brewers would know, it uh, has a positive charge and it removes yeast. Yeast has a negative charge. But the Isinglass itself has, uh, so it has an overall, Isinglass has an overall net uh, positive charge. However, if you look at Isinglass, it contains areas of both positive charge and negative charge. So it's able to um, adsorb or bind to the yeast with a negative charge, but other sites along the Isinglass can still bond with, uh, positively charged proteins. So protein generally has a positive charge, but there are many smaller sites, and it depends upon how finely you look at these particles. So that's what allows it to bind um, other particles in the beer with multiple charges. I think another part that's um, interesting in understanding ice and glass is that, uh, again, this is due to the collagen and the specific. Chemical makeup of the particular type of collagen that's used for icing glass uh, keeps it very rigid. It doesn't change its shape easily. It doesn't bend or deform. So what happens, uh, I imagine, you know, traditionally it's called uh, a net uh, and a net that catches other particles as it falls down through the tank. But to me, in my mind, a net is uh, made up of rope. It's rather soft and pliable. Uh, In in reality, the the icing glass doesn't appear to be that soft and pliable. So by maintaining that rigid structure, all those many sites that are both positively and negatively charged never become uh, fouled or bound up in other particles. They remain rigid and open and available to bind to other particles in the beer. So I think that makes it quite interesting.
0: Something unique about Isenglass is that it works really fast. You can get bright beer in as few as one to four hours. Why is that?
1: Well, again, I think uh, before we knew a lot about brewing science, uh, we just knew that these things worked. And... I think for Isinglass and, and now we're talking specifically about cast beer production. So before uh, large breweries, before the invention of the filtration and filtration that we know today, uh, brewers found out that this works. Uh, and again, I think it's, this is linked specifically to ice and glass that comes from swim bladders of fish. There's always, uh, uh, if you read about Isinglass and, glass and uh, if you get the product information from your supplier, you have to be very careful not to let it get too warm. Otherwise, it will denature and turn into gelatin. Now, gelatin is widely available. A lot of home brewers and small brewers do use gelatin quite successfully for finding and clarifying their beer. And gelatin is also used quite extensively in the winemaking industry. But based upon what I've read, uh, I'm, my guess is that for cask beers, uh, Isinglass was found to give a very uh, short uh, settling time and allowed brewers to clarify the beer in a the, in the one to four hour time period. So I think that's uh, the advantage of icing glass, and that's really a specific application where it does such a great job even though you have other types of gelatin available I think uh, traditionally icing glass for cask beers gave the best results the other part was the transport so the icing glass would be added in the brewery had to get transported to a pub it would settle again very well and I, I think that's where uh, another type of uh, gelatin and uh, maybe uh, mammalian based would not perform as well.
0: How about those um, the, cl- the, ta- the clarification times? What, what can you expect in a larger vessel?
1: In, in a larger tank, yes. I think the clarification, the settling time is going to be much greater. So if you think about a particle on the surface of the beer falling to the bottom of the tank, it has a much greater distance to fall, and it will require a, a longer time. Even though the settling velocity might be the same and and that's where i think uh for clarification and in other parts of brewing stokes law uh really helps us to understand what's happening in there and and basically stokes law says that the settling velocity so how quickly a particle will fall to the bottom of a tank uh, is governed by the uh, particle diameter and the liquid density uh in the tank so the larger you make the particle the faster it's going to fall in a tank. And then that's where Isinglass and other fighting agents help to make larger particles.
0: The bigger they are, the harder they fall, right? That's it, exactly. All right. Another unique quality is that Isinglass has been observed to improve foam stability. Tell us how that's possible.
1: Well, we, we know that it helps to remove phospholipids that are in the beer. Uh, So, again, phospholipid is uh, containing some fat or oil, which we know is full negative. The exact mechanism for this, as far as I can tell in uh, reading through the papers, still is not clearly understood. So, uh, although we know it works, we don't know exactly how it works. And interestingly, on on things like icing glass, which have been around for so long, and people think it's, oh, that's old, and there's nothing new to learn about it, there are still quite a few areas where we don't understand everything. So if there are any uh, aspiring brewing students out there, there's a lot of topics that are uh, ripe for further research. Coming up you really need to do some optimization trials before you start using it in your production. So you want the highest clarity at the lowest amount of sediment with the lowest dose rate. So you have to balance all three of those factors.
0: I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. Here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers Calendar. District St. Louis meets at O'Fallon Brewery on February 15th. The Fundamentals of Cut and Stack Labeling Webinar is February 19th. District Rocky Mountain meets at AB in Fort Collins February 22nd. District Philly will be at Troggs February 23rd. District Milwaukee and the Wisconsin Brewers Guild hold a joint technical conference March 1st and 2nd at Badger State Brewing. District Mid-South meets at Mill Creek in Nashville March 2nd and 3rd. District Northern Rockies meets in Bozeman March 2nd. The District Midwest Spring Meeting is at Madtree Brewing March 10th. Districts Michigan and St. Louis both meet March 15th. And check out the speaker lineup for the 2018 Eastern Technical Conference, March 23rd and 24th in Atlantic City. View the full count of events at nbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Now back to the show. You wrote that silica solutions are often used in conjunction with Isinglass as auxil- auxiliary findings. Anything you'd like to describe or add there?
1: Well, uh, one part to keep in mind, and it's probably hard for uh, everyday brewers to even get this kind of information, is the particle distribution. Uh, and This comes up a few times if you read the uh, literature on Isinglass. For the Isinglass to work properly, you need to have a very specific particle distribution, uh, and they're talking about things that are less than 2 microns, between 2 and 10 microns, and greater than 10 microns. And there should be a, a, a fairly uh, set range in those categories for ice and glass to work well. So the next question is, well, what if I don't have a particle distribution within that recommended range? What can I do? That's where the auxiliary fines come in. So uh, there are a few products out there that are used to help uh, clarify uh, beer, uh, silica gel, perhaps uh, PVPP. I don't mean perhaps it's a it's a fining aid, but perhaps it could help work in this specific application uh, and some other things uh, that will help basically reduce the amount of particles and most likely get it into a more optimum, uh, particle distribution range. The thing to keep in mind is that icing glass should be used last. That should be the last finding dosed into your beer. So anything else you use should go in first, It uh, could include also just uh, carrageenan added into the kettle. It could include, uh, auxiliary finding agents, added uh, post fermentation so during a uh, storage of the beer but whatever you use that goes in first you do not mix it with your icing glass and dose those together if you are doing that in a cellar so add those first make sure they're uh, mixed into the beer well and then you add your icing glass, and that should give the best results
0: how, how can a brewer tell if whether or not they've got the that right that correct particle distribution <laughs>
1: Uh, In all my years of brewing, uh, the only places doing uh, particle distribution analysis are large labs, whether it's a brewing lab or an outside lab. So I I think it is um, it is difficult to at best to be able to do that kind of analysis. Uh, I would suggest start with your supplier first. um, And that's something I wanted to touch on as well. It's simply not a matter of taking ice and glass and dosing it in and saying, okay, it, it worked or it didn't work. You really need to do some optimization trials before you start using it in your production. And the optimization trials will help you find out what is the best dose rate for the beer that you are using it on. There are general guidelines that a supplier can provide to you as a brewer, but you still have to go back to the brewery. And... Uh, do these optimization trials on your own, because you could find uh, that you're dosing way too much. So that's uh, wasting money uh, if you're dosing too much, or you could find also that you're not dosing enough. So uh, you'll, you'll feel frustrated as a brewer that I've paid money, I've spent time in the process to dose this, and I'm still not getting the results that I'm supposed to get.
0: Makes sense. And that's really true for any kind of findings, right? I mean, pretty much any findings, you've, you really ought to be doing an optimi- optimization trial to, to find out that, that magic dose point for that particular brand, right?
1: Yes, yes. And uh, they're fairly easy to do. Uh, I think every brewer should know how to do it and should be able to do it on a regular basis. And uh, you should do it at the very least yearly when you have a crop change with your malt and also with your hops. Uh, if you go online uh, or to your your supplier, there are videos on YouTube available. So suppliers uh, sometimes have links on their websites, or you could just go ahead uh, and you, to YouTube and uh, type it in the search, and they'll walk you through what is required to do some optimization trials. You take one beer stream or you take one work stream, you add different. Uh, Doses, so different dose rates in, say, four or five different samples of the same wort, um, and then you just uh, wait and let it uh, settle. So this is something that uh, collecting wort, preparing your solution and dosing it and looking at the results is uh, maybe one day, two days at the most. And you'll need, uh, you'll need maybe just uh, you know, a few liters. You just need some small sample bottles to, to do this. So not a big uh, demand on time.
0: Yeah, I've done it a few times. It's really, really pretty simple. I mean, you just need, whether you're using graduated cylinders or, or, or little like sterile sample bottles or whatever, and, um, you know, just take i um, I've used a fluorescent light that you can get from Walmart or whatever and put a piece of black electrical tape across it and use that in the background, you know, to judge the um, the samples too. So, I mean, it's it, it can definitely be done on a
1: budget and it's it's not hard to do. No, it's not. So you mean making a light box to look at the clarity? Yes. and I think uh, actually Charlie Bamforth in one of his MBAA papers, and it's probably on Hayes, describes how you can make a very inexpensive box like that uh, in order to assess clarity. And it's visual. It's uh, at this point, you're just looking at visual clarity. If you have other instrumentation uh, and and you want to do some more in-depth analysis, you can do that as well. the other part is just you know how do you know what is enough right so the idea is that you want a, a bright wart and that's going to be somewhat different for each brewer but i think we could all agree there is a certain range if, if we're talking about bright wart the other part is you don't want to produce too much sediment or what would be called fluffy bottom so you could overdose you can get a very bright brilliant wart or beer uh, but you have too much sediment. And of course, too much sediment means there's going to be higher losses. So that's, uh, you're finding that balance between clarity and sediment. So you want the highest clarity at the lowest amount of sediment with the lowest dose rate. So it, you have to balance all three of those factors.
0: What would you say are the main findings that compete with Isenglass? And maybe talk about where Eisen, Isenglass either outperforms or underperforms against those alternatives.
1: Well, I, I think you have to look at it um, more of being part of a lot of tools available to the brewer to produce bright beer. So to produce a product you're looking for or eliminate haze. So it can't be any one product or any one step in the brewing process that takes care of the, the problem you want to eliminate. You really have to look uh, upstream uh, all the way to your malt and your brewing practices to after Isinglass, of course, would be perhaps some type of filtration and packaging. Uh, So Isinglass, very good at removing yeast. Um, So that's uh, one type of haze you could have. But then you also have... Uh, chill haze, which is protein polyphenol, so you can look at other finding agents to remove proteins or polyphenols. So it, I I don't think it's uh, saying one or the other, but it's looking at uh, what's available, what your process is, uh, what the limitations are, and what you can do within your process as uh, how you're treating your beer and, and what you want, want that beer to look like, and and all of it's really geared towards being able to do this consistently and to do it uh, efficiently, economically, so not wasting money or beer in order to get the, the finished product that you as a brewer want to have in the hands of the consumer.
0: Obviously, much of the growth in this industry has been and will continue to be in the small neighborhood taproom breweries and brew pubs, and a lot of those folks can't or don't want to filter their beer. For the small craft brewer who has never used Isinglass before but would like to give it a try, how do you suggest they get started?
1: Well, uh, I think you you probably need some samples first, or if a sample is not available, you can uh, get small size available from your supplier. Uh, Again, there should be some uh, protocol, some instructions on on how to use it. Some Isinglass comes uh, ready to use, depending upon. which country you live in, how far you are from the supply, or also freeze-dried. So you just have to mix that with some water. Uh, I imagine give it some time to hydrate and you could dose it into your beer. So there are, uh, for a small-scale brewer, there are definitely uh, ways you can uh, get started, do some trials, and see if it works for you or not.
0: That was Andrew Fradiani here on the Master Brewers podcast. Do yourself a favor and read Andrew's article in the Master Brewers Technical Quarterly. You can get there from the publications menu or by typing Eisenglass into the industry's best search bar at mbaa.com. As you all know, Master Brewers is a nonprofit organization. You probably also realize that it's expensive to produce shows like the Master Brewers podcast every week. If you're a vendor, please consider sponsoring the Master Brewers podcast. It'll cost you less than you probably spent to sponsor that last district meeting, and your message will reach the thousands of brewers who tune in each week. Click contact
1: from masterbrewerspodcast.com to learn more.